What I see in my mind is that phrase that Richard used, that vast space between us, the gap between us. The gap is not only between us, but within each of us too. Between what we've experienced and what can only be passed on, what we remember and what we forget. And both kinds of gaps can make it very hard to live fully. We are a nation that really venerates youth, change, progress, and the future. We're a nation uncomfortable facing its past. It was not an American, but a British citizen who created the image of the memory hole, George Orwell in his 1948 novel, 1984. But it's a familiar phenomenon, isn't it? Right here in the United States, another novelist, one from this country, Barbara Kingsolver, has one of her characters call us a nation of amnesiacs. That's why it's so meaningful that we have a national day devoted to memory. So coming up on Memorial Day, I'm finding the difficulty of even telling the history of Memorial Day correctly. It's contested, of course. But here's what I think I know, some of it anyway. First, of it, first it was a way to honor the war dead, the Civil War, the Union Civil War. And over time, especially after World War I, it became a common holiday celebrated in many locations around the country on May 30th. And then it was a federal holiday and was set as the last Monday in May. It's expanded not only in, in its time and its practices, but in, in how it's interpreted. In some Unitarian Universalist churches, Memorial Day, this Sunday today, would be their day to remember everybody who has died, everyone in our lives over the past year, um, everybody maybe in the, in the church, everybody in our lives ever, um, much as we do at Dia de los Muertos, All Souls, Samhain in the fall. For many, Memorial Day is a day off, it's a day for picnics and a preview of summer. In my hometown, and I know many, many others, it's a day when you are in the parade or watching it. And of course, because this is the United States and there's nothing that we will not exploit to buy and sell, it's a big day for sales. And then there's all the difficulties of honoring it correctly. Speaking of the dead with anything other than reverence, not only for them, but for the military aims for which their lives were sacrificed is treated as politicizing the day. This is true. Those are political matters. But Memorial Day is not only politicized, it was political from the very start. It was created, as I understand it, from uh, by uh, black Union veterans and other new, newly freed black citizens of the post-Civil War country who wanted specifically to honor the Union soldiers who had died to help preserve the Union and their freedom. Right away, there became this question. Was that about the dead? Or 
another declaration of victory, Union over the Confederacy. Could you honor the Confederate dead on such a day, or only those from the Union? And then, nowadays, can you honor everybody, or just the military dead? What about civilians, who are killed much more often than soldiers in wars? Do we celebrate war when we honor the warriors? Must we, or should we not? Political and touchy questions. What Memorial Day causes us to face is what we wish to remember and what we wish to forget. And I have a deep faith that when it comes to painful memories, memory is better than forgetting. Memory is better than forgetting. I don't want to be glib about it. And I think what we're talking about really is traumatic memory. And that's a touchy matter for nations and especially for individuals. You can't just, I don't know, pop psychology style, just come up with all your memories, bring them all out, and then all will be well. But forgetting takes energy. Forgetting is about lying, and so it divides people from themselves and from one another. And I want to focus particularly on this question of what do we do when our trauma is one of guilt and shame, individual or collective, by association perhaps with people like us, our own country, our own ethnicity, our own region. The trauma of those returning from war, for example, can be a mixture of the injury done by fearing for one's life, by loss of friends, by witnessing terrible destruction and death, and by things the warriors themselves have done that are incompatible with their peacetime senses, sense of themselves, with all that they were taught to be and do in peacetime. As a result of trying to help returnees from war to cope with the trauma inflicted on their consciences, there's a new phrase that's making it into the psychological literature, moral injury which is a deep loss of oneself as a moral agent. A conviction that not only has one done things that are bad, everyone suffers from that and needs to process our remorse, guilt, even shame, but moral injury includes the conviction that one is now incapable of being a good person. I think a nation can also suffer moral injury and a nation can heal. So by way of such a story, let me tell you a story as it was related to me by friends of mine who had been traveling. You can walk with me in imagination as I did when they told me about their travels in Berlin. They're walking in a city strange to them and the streets in this neighborhood, the sidewalks are cobbled Little stones, mostly gray, about 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters, four inches by four inches. And there up ahead and now underfoot is a glint of metal of a brass color. They have come across a Stolperstein. It says in German, here lived, and it gives a name and a year of birth. And it says, and they were murdered 
and it gives a place and a date. They lived, they were here. And as you look up and continue to walk, you see that there are many others of these stones, Stolpersteins, stumbling stones in English. You begin to realize that they are all around, 70,000 in all, not all of those in Berlin, though there are lots, country, and in other countries, Austria, Poland, Ukraine, the Netherlands, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Italy, Norway, Greece, in hundreds of cities, over 700 cities. The Stolpersteinen were created and have been carried on by him and others by an artist named Gunter Demnig. He is German. Their language is simple and it's exacting. He has rules. Anybody can submit um, the name and information for somebody in whose honor they would like to install a Stolperstein. But he does not want family members who often do the nominating to pay for them. Usually that's the city or some foundation in the area. It should read, here lived, and it should be installed at the place, as close as possible to the place, where somebody last lived freely of their own free choice. Many people were expelled during the Holocaust from the places that they chose to live, especially Jews then sent into housing, particularly for Jews or into ghettos, and from there finally into concentration camps. This should be in the place where they lived of their own free choice, and if that's not available, their workplace, it will read, here worked. Their name, the year of birth, and the exact date they were murdered. The Stolpersteinen are for the Holocaust, the period from about 1938 to 1945. And for Gunter Demnig, everyone who died in a concentration camp was murdered. For example, Anne Frank died of typhus. People may die of typhus anywhere, but she died in a concentration camp, and she is remembered as a murder victim, which is, of course, completely accurate. As we know, people were killed during this period by the government of the time because they were Jewish, because they were gay, because they were disabled, because they were Roma, because they were politically undesirable, because one way or another they did not fit into the vision of the Third Reich and its Aryan paradise. And so there are these stumbling stones. They're flat. They are flush with the street, and yet that is what they are called. So, my friend said, the past is everywhere in Berlin the most difficult, shameful, guilt-laden piece of the all-too-recent past that almost any nation might have to remember or forget. It's everywhere. As journalist Ann Thomas wrote recently upon the 20th anniversary of the project, of course, the stones are also about the present. If you bow down to read the inscription of a Stolperstein, you quickly start thinking 
That person was my age when he was murdered, or the age of my daughter, or born the same year as my grandmother. You start to reflect. You start to wonder what would have happened to you. What would you have done if you had noticed that the family in the opposite flat had disappeared in the middle of the night? What would you do today if your neighbors disappeared? That's a painful question for us today. She says, they are a way of making unfathomable figures fathomable. They are a way of making cold facts personal. This is a particularly creative public art response, not official, but embraced by many, many towns and governments in these countries and encouraged by them. But Germany is not the only nation of our time that has grappled in this way with its past. Rwanda, South Africa have undergone similar processes. What's remarkable about those is that the crimes they are remembering, the terrible losses, the people who have vanished, all of that has happened within memory. There are people still alive who witnessed the crimes, who suffered them, who committed them. And this was true 23 years ago, as it is still a little true in Germany when they began the Stolperstein project. I'm trying to imagine calling these things, keeping them in memory when they are that fresh, when you're talking about your neighbors, your family, yourself. And I salute these countries. Because right here, in our country, we see what happens when we can't face the past. 150 years after the end of the Civil War, those wounds are still open. Now, it's really important not to point at others' history. The distant past, too much like, not at all like us, you know. People of different regions, people not like us. It's important to look at our own. I was raised a northerner, a Yankee, through and through. And it was easy to learn about the crimes of the South and judge their racial history. But that's not what this is about. If we're going to honor the process of memory of Memorial Day, we have to each look at what is the history that we find difficult to own. Our own. Demnig chose the name Stolperstein from an anti-Semitic saying common during the Third Reich. You know the saying um, that somebody feels like if they get a shiver for no reason, you might say, oh, somebody must have walked over where my, where my grave is going to be, right? It was kind of like that. But it is so unpleasant, so bitter, that I, I really hate to bring it into this sacred space. But I think it's important to know. This anti-Semitic saying during the Third Reich was that um, would occur when somebody stumbled over an uneven stone in the street. They would say, oh, a Jew must be buried there. So he's deliberately bringing that forward to the future and turning it around. Most of the time, a Stolperstein is where a Jew lived or worked. Here they are, 
right here. How does that feel as you walk by, as you see the glint of the brass? To my mind, there's an older context of the term stumbling stone or stumbling block from an admonishment in the biblical book of Leviticus. Thou shalt not revile the deaf, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. Now this admonishment, it clearly is about, it's against not only carelessness, but cruelty. Do not speak ill of those who cannot even hear you to respond and defend themselves. Don't put a stone in front of anyone, but especially in front of those whose eyes can't even warn them. The deafness and blindness are perhaps metaphorical, even in the ancient text. But the Stolperstein put a twist on their meaning. The person who is blind to the past deserves to have a stumbling block set before them in order that they may see. The blindness is not physical but metaphorical. And the stumbling block, the Stolpersteinen, are not hurtful but helpful. Painful, yes, but helpful. When the ground is interrupted, when you see something in the street a few paces ahead, you have to slow down, you have to pay attention. You pause, you notice. This may be why one of the cities that has not been amenable to the project, Munich, has resisted putting them on the ground. They say they'll accept them, but only as plaques on the buildings. Demnig won't install them on those terms. He says, no, they have to be on the ground. They have to be where you will have to see them as you look down to walk steadily. What would help us here in our culture, in our country, to slow down and notice what the past has to say to us. What would we install here in the United States if instead of fearing memory, we embraced it? Again, if you thought of places far away or culturally distinct, I urge you to think again. What would be right here, where we live, causing us to stumble over the gap between our consciences and our history? There's a wonderful book, um, a debut novel written just three years ago by somebody who's local to this area now since she graduated from Stanford. Yara Jesse, she wrote a book called Homegoing. Ber uh, lives in Berkeley now. The structure of this book is uh, alternating chapters between two sides of a family, between two half-sisters who did not even know of their, each other's existence and down through their descendants, alternating chapter by chapter. It starts with the Ashanti of Ghana and travels to the United States of our own time through seven generations in all. A magical, powerful, and biblical number, I'm sure, that Jesse chose on purpose. <coughs> through it all, there's a token of memory, a necklace. Each has a necklace, each sister had one. The characters, after a generation or so, can't remember what it meant, or the meaning changes as it's passed down. 
One sister's descendants forget about it altogether because they don't have it anymore. Their ancestor hid it for safekeeping and could not go back to retrieve it. But we as readers are privy to the history that has been forgotten or suppressed. And so we can make the connections between someone in a tribal war among the Ashanti and her great-great-grandchild torn in the Civil War in this country and so on, connections between the generations that they themselves cannot see. And so Jesse has evoked this vivid, beautiful sense of how all of us are shaped by things we cannot remember or will not remember or that our ancestors did not want us to know and so they did not pass on. A case that comes really close to home is something you may have listened to as well the last couple of weeks. If not, I strongly urge you to. It's called uh, White Lies. It's a podcast published, um, produced by National Public Radio. And it's a story of the Unitarian Universalist minister, uh, James Reeb, who heeded the call, like many, many others, to go to Selma in 1965. But unique among the ministers who went there, he was killed. He and two other Unitarian Universalist ministers um, were assaulted by a gang in the street the day before they went home. And he was struck on the head and died two days later. Now, there's a fascinating inquiry in this podcast about who really killed him, why we don't know. It's a little self-congratulatory at times. We went through 20 hours of transcripts, things like that. And the only unsolved one of that period in Selma, when actually just like the men who killed Viola Liuzzo, whom they mentioned, but who we know is also a UU. This isn't a UU story, except for those of us who are listening with those ears. But I haven't heard the whole story yet. Maybe I have yet to hear what is unique about Jim Reeb's story. Other than that, because as the narrators, the young southern white narrators uh, and reporters say, because white lives mattered to the country more than black lives, it was his death that caused Lyndon Johnson to sign the, the um, Voting Rights Act and to give what is generally considered one of the great, greatest speeches of his presidency. So they're inquiring, these young Southern reporters, of older Southerners, some of whom just barely remember this event from all those years ago, 50 years ago. They're inquiring, what really happened? What do you remember? What do you know? And they're coming up against quite a lot of shut doors, literally. I don't want to talk about that. We don't need to talk about the past. The past is gone. That's a common phrase that arises often in these conversations. And another one is, this isn't who we are. I'm sure it's not all of what Selma is. It's hard to be a resident of a city that is so identified with such terrible things. I can understand wanting to know, wanting the world to know. That's not all who we are, and that's true. 
This isn't what America is about, we say, when something shocking hits the news, or when a man is accused of assault or harassment, when the evidence is presented, he says, that isn't who I am. Right there in Congress. And that phrase, this isn't who we are, is responding to memory with denial. But it's part of who we are. It's part of the whole. And the phrase says so much. It says that we struggle to reconcile our self-image, the way that we want to see ourselves, with what is actually showing up in the mirror. We struggle to reconcile the way we want to be with what we are right now. It's a matter of trying to reconcile our contrast between them and reality. That's not a problem. That's not bad. It's painful, but it's not bad. Ignoring it is bad. Stumbling a little on our consciences. That is not a problem. Having only smooth stones before us, history erased, written over with fantasy, that's the problem. And it costs us. What Germany does when it looks at its Nazi past, that is not easy. What Rwanda is trying to do, what South Africa has sought to do, is hard, hard work. What we do when we look honestly at our past as a country, when we look at our past as individuals, is some of the hardest work that human beings can do. We do it in the knowledge that the past is always here with us. As Faulkner said, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past. Honestly, at it in the faith that it is better to know than to dwell in ignorance. It's better to live in the truth, however laden with regret, than in a pretty lie. Is that not our faith? It's important for individuals and for countries, although the processes are different. The word reconciliation comes up. <clears throat> such as in the South African process. It's from the Latin to, for, um, to assemble, to unite. And I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring our ideal selves and our actual selves a little closer to each other, not by ignoring or suppressing the gap between them, but by noting it so that we can act a little bit more like we would like to. In that goal, memory is never our enemy. It's our friend. It's our friend. If we can move beyond shame, shame for ourselves, or vicarious shame for people like us, people we would like to admire, like our ancestors, like our compatriots, can we move beyond that and own our entire histories as flawed people? Surely, if twice our old enemy, surely if the practitioners of some of the most egregious attempts at genocide in human history can do it. We can do it too. And it's about being whole within ourselves. All these different, different selves, different personalities and facts of our country through time, they're like, they, they each sing a different note. They're all different. And we change, we hope. We change from what we were. 
Today, we try to be better than we were yesterday, and if we do it right, then tomorrow we'll find us discovering regrets about what we're doing today with the best of intentions. But it's all us. All of these times, all of these people through time are us. If we bridge the divisions of shame and denial with memory, imagine with all of our voices, friends, we could make such sweet harmony. <laughs>